Well, at a little before 8 a.m. on Friday, June 11th, 2021, veteran lobster diver Michael Packard entered the water for his second dive of the day. His vessel, the John Jay, was off Herring Cove Beach and surrounded by a fleet of boats catching striped bass. The water temperature that day was a balmy 60 degrees, the visibility about 20 feet. And, and licensed commercial lobster divers literally dive into the water to pluck lobsters off of the sandy bottom. And as Packard, age 56, dove down Friday morning, he saw schools of sand lances and stripers swimming by him. The ocean food chain was in full effect. But about 10 feet from the bottom, Packard suddenly knew what it truly felt like to be a part of that chain. And something truly biblical, Packard was swallowed whole by a humpback whale. He accounts, all of a sudden I felt this huge shove and the next thing I knew, I was, it was completely black. He said, I could sense I was moving, I could feel the whale squeezing with the muscles in his mouth. And initially, Packard thought he was inside a great white shark, but he couldn't feel any teeth and he hadn't suffered any obvious wounds, and so it quickly dawned on him that he had been swallowed by a whale. I was completely inside. It was completely black, Packard said. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. All I could think of was my boys. They're 12 and 15 years old. Outfitted with scuba gear, he struggled and the whale began shaking its head so that Packard could tell he, he didn't like it. He estimated that he was inside of the whale for 30 to 40 seconds before the whale finally surfaced, where he says, I saw light and I started throwing, and it started throwing its head side to side, and the next thing I knew, I was outside. And so this morning, we're in a new sermon series in the book of Jonah. It's a story that we're familiar with. It's a story that's often debated. Is this story an allegory? You don't really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish, do you? Well, apparently it is possible, right? And if we believe that Jesus raised the dead to life and that he resurrected from the grave after three days, then is it really that much of a stretch to believe a man was swallowed by a fish and spit back up? I'll put my cards on the table. I, I believe that this story that we're venturing into is a true story. It has, it has all of the common features of an historical narrative. It contains the kind of details that an author provides when he's telling a story about real events. The author seems to want us to read this story as recorded history. Furthermore, if you read the scriptures, you'll find that there was a prophet named Jonah mentioned in the book of 2 Kings. He was one of the prophets in Israel. So Jonah was a real prophet. He was a real dude. And so I'm inclined to think that the, the events in this book that we're about to encounter really happened. And if you'll allow me to play my trump card, Jesus seems to insinuate that this story happened when he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, for just as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. When in doubt, I just go with Jesus, right? 
I also think that the parallel that Jesus makes between himself and and Jonah is that they were both swallowed up by death and then raised back to life. That they were both in the tomb and came back out. It's my belief that in this story, Jonah, when he's in the belly of the fish, actually died and that God gave him new life. And that's actually what this story is all about. The story of Jonah is a story of a God who gives second chances. It's it's about a God who is full of compassion and, and mercy. A God who loves the worst of sinners and offers them grace. That's what this story is about. It's a story that forces us to consider our own hearts. Are you that kind of person? Do you have that compassion? The same kind of compassion that God has. He has, has, has the kindness of God made you into a merciful person. That's, that's, that's what uh, Jonah is forced to wrestle with as the Lord holds up the mirror to him. And that's what he wants to do with you and me. And so let's not get lost in debating this story and miss the core message of it. That God loves prodigals. That he pursues rebels. That he gives grace to the undeserving. I don't know about you, that's good news for me. And it's good news for Jonah because he was a prodigal prophet. As the story of Jonah begins, Jonah is behaving as a fugitive. He's a man on the run. Notice what it says here. It says, God comes to Jonah And he says, get up and I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. God sends Jonah to Nineveh. But the narrator tells us Jonah got up to go to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Nineveh was about 550 miles to the northeast of where Jonah was. Tarshish was about 2,500 miles west of Joppa, where Jonah was. So when I tell you that Jonah went in the complete opposite direction of where he was supposed to go, I want you to imagine living in the city of Nashville and being told to go to Washington, D.C., and instead going to San Francisco. That's what Jonah did. God told Jonah to go to D.C., and Jonah went to San Francisco. And this isn't a case of Kevin McAllister accidentally ending up on the wrong flight, right? Jonah's misdirection was intentional. That was a Home Alone reference, if you didn't know, okay? We're getting close to Christmas. I can't help myself. Now, to make sense of this situation, we need to understand a couple things. We need to, one, understand the role of a prophet. And we need to, two, understand the relationship between Israel and Assyria, Prophets in Israel were like God's mouthpieces. It was how God often spoke to his people. Their job was to proclaim God's message. And so prophets were empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God. The role of a prophet was like that of a table waiter. Their job was to deliver the food to the table, untainted. They didn't get to go in the kitchen and mess with the food. That wasn't their job. They're not chefs, right? They don't get to tinker with the recipes. They don't even get to rearrange the food on the plate. They're handed the plate of food, and they're told, take this plate to that table and deliver it, and don't put your thumb in it while you're walking, right? Simply deliver the dish to whom it was prepared for. 
Don't mess with the food. Just carry it. Prophets didn't get to change God's message. They didn't get to determine who got the message. Their job was to deliver the message. And God had a message, a special message, for the people of Nineveh. Jonah had his own opinion about the Ninevites. He didn't like the fact that God had a message for them. He didn't want to go anywhere near their table. He didn't want to wait their table. Nineveh, you see, was the largest city in the Assyrian Empire. And they were a kingdom known for their brutality. They were known for how brutally they treated prisoners of war and criminals. They reigned through terror. They they brought people into submission through fear. And they were a pagan people. They worshipped false gods whose worship rituals included that of child sacrifice. Jonah could not fathom why God would be offering them a message. Even if it was a word of warning, even if it was a word of impending judgment, Jonah could not understand why God would want to give them any message at all. And he certainly didn't want to be the one who delivered that message to them. I mean, knowing how they treated people, Jonah didn't want to go anywhere near them. He didn't like this idea at all. And so his response was likely equal parts hatred and fear. Do you know that there are going to be times in your life when God calls you to do things that you do not naturally agree with or want to do? That there are going to be times in your life when obeying the word of God is not going to make sense to you. Can I admit something to you? There are things that I do not naturally agree with in the Bible. There are some hard truths in the scriptures. But you know what? God is not subject to my sensibilities or opinions. I'm subject to his. Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Of course, of course, right, that there are moments, there are tensions, there are times when God disagrees with us. Unless we would make ourselves out to be God. Here was a moment where Jonah found himself in disagreement with God. It was a moment where he had a decision to make. To either submit and trust God despite his feelings or to trust in his own wisdom. And Jonah chose to run away. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 instructs us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not rely on your own understanding in all your ways Know him, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. But here was a moment where Jonah relied on his own understanding. He chose his own path. He was wise in his own eyes. And friends, this is the essence of sin. 
This is the essence of sin. The Bible has different ways of picturing sin. Sometimes it's pictured as missing the mark. Sometimes it's pictured as crossing a line. Sometimes it's pictured as bearing a guilt or a stain. Here, the best picture is that of rebellion. God had given Jonah a clear direction, and Jonah chose to run in the opposite direction. Rebellion is running from God's word. And I want you to notice that running is rejecting the word of God. You, you, you cannot follow God and deny his word. God and his word are inseparable realities. Some people try to say, well, I, I, I love God, I, I follow God, but I, I can't get down with everything in, in the Bible. I, I can't accept certain things in there. Well, now we have a problem, right? Because we cannot separate God from his word. God reveals his will through his word. He reveals his character through his word. That was the whole issue with Jonah. He didn't want to accept God's word. And by rejecting God's word, he rejected God. And friends, we face the same danger. This temptation to reject the word of God. Now, it's often more subtle than, than Jonah, where he just flat defies God's word. There are different ways that we can try to do this. In fact, I, I want to unpack a few of these with you. There, sometimes we disobey by doubting God's word. This really takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Do you remember how the certain serpent tempted Eve? Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? What's the serpent doing? He's twisting God's word and tempting Eve to doubt God's word. And we face the same temptation. Can I really trust God? Does he really have my best interest in mind? Is the Bible really reliable on this matter? Maybe I'm not reading and understanding it Correctly, Maybe there's another interpretation and we end up doing hermeneutical gymnastics to try to get around and get over what this word is clearly saying. We doubt God's word. And we can fool ourselves into thinking that by doubting God's word, we're let off the hook of it. But friends, doubt is an opportunity for us to exercise faith through our uncertainty, not a way to avoid what God has said. Doubt is an opportunity to exercise faith not an opportunity to avoid God. In your doubts, are you, are you leaning toward God or are you running away from God? Another way we can run from God's word is by debating it. We can disobey by debating the word. The Pharisees are exhibit A of this, right? Jesus is teaching one day, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, I have a question. Who's my neighbor? This, this religious leader wanted a definition so that he could avoid rather than keep the command. The Pharisees would scrupulously define the law ultimately as a way of avoiding the heart of it. They'd set limits as a means of rebelling, not obeying. In other words, they didn't want clarity so that they could keep it. They wanted clarity so that they could avoid it. Do you remember what Jesus told them on another occasion? He said, you tithe your mint and your dill while you avoid the weightier matters of the law. You, you emphasize your man-made rules while you neglect the big E on the eye chart of God's heart. And so I wonder, is your debating aimed at understanding or running? Do you, do you debate God's word to avoid it or to, to genuinely understand it? 
It's an important question. We can also disobey by, by disregarding the word. And by disregarding what I mean is we can be so busy in our lives that we never stop to ask, what has God said about this? Does the Bible teach anything about this? What, what does God want me to do in this situation? What is his will for my life on this matter? Does the scriptures say anything to this? Listen to me, not knowing what he has said is no excuse for those of us who have access to his word. I run into this sometimes with my boys. Dad, I didn't know mom wanted me to, to do that. Really? Because the note was left on the counter. And I can see the cinnamon roll smudge on the note. So I know you saw it. There's an entire book of scripture, the book of Deuteronomy, where God is rehearsing the covenant that he entered into with his people, with these second generation Israelites. An entire generation had died in the wilderness, and now there's this second generation, and they're on the precipice of the promised land. They're on the, they're on the brink of crossing over the Jordan into the promised land. And so God is rehearsing the covenant with them. And, and Moses tells them over and over and over again, remember the covenant, rehearse it, memorize it, meditate on it. Teach it to your children. Talk about it when you wake up and talk about it when you go to sleep and talk about it when you're on the way and talk about it when you sit down to eat. Know what my word has said. That's what God's telling them over and over and over. And I just wonder how well do we know God's word? I think a, a major problem in the current state of the evangelical church in America is simply a failure to truly know God's word. We are overwhelmed with Bibles. We have multiple Bibles on the shelves of our home and yet we don't read them. We have disregarded the scriptures for the opinions of pundits and podcasts. Many of us have been perhaps discipled more by the left or the right than the Lord. Are you devoting yourself to knowing God's word? Finally, we see here that we can rebel simply by defying his commands. This is like the deacon who got upset with the pastor and yelled out, don't you go bringing the Bible into this. Sometimes we just flat out don't want to hear what God has to say. That was Jonah. This wasn't a matter of confusion or ambiguity or nuance. The Lord said, go. Jonah said, no. That's how I teach three-year-olds this story, right? God said, go. Jonah said, no. Verse 3 says, he found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into going with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. And did you catch those last four words? From the Lord's presence. Here, at this moment, Jonah is simultaneously lucid and stupid. Because on the one hand, he knows that to abort God's command is to abandon God himself. That there is no division here, right, between the two. To forsake God's word is to flee his presence. And so on the one hand, Jonah is thinking lucidly. But on the other hand, Jonah had better theology than to think that he could actually run from God. Jonah knew better. He was a prophet. He had read the word. He knew Psalm 139. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I, if I go up to heaven, you're there. 
If, my, if I make my bed in Sheol, in the depths, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Jonah says, I can go find the darkest corner of the globe, or the psalmist rather says, I can go find the darkest corner of the globe and dark is light to you. I can't hide from God. Friends, listen, there is not a safe room in the universe that can hide you to escape the active presence of the Almighty. Maybe you've been pretending that if you don't acknowledge God, he's not really there like the boogeyman in your room. That if you just pull the covers up, he'll go away. Friends, listen to me. He's in the room with you. He's closer than you realize. I wonder if there's someone here this morning fooling himself, believing that because your rebellion happens in secret, it goes unseen. Friend, listen to me. Jesus sees. He knows. You can't hide from him. You can't run from him. Jonah pretended as if he could simply stow away in a ship and sail off to Tarshish. But see, there's no such thing as getting away from God or getting away with sin. It may seem like that at first. Jonah was probably feeling pretty good about himself. He paid his fare. He went down into the hole of the ship. He's nestled in his spot. He goes to sleep. That's how comfortable he is in his sin. He's like, I'm doing this thing. Suddenly the wind begins to blow. The waves begin to chop against the boat. Because God loved Jonah too much to let him simply drift away in his sin. This is the good news of God. He pursues sinners. He chases them down. He sends the holy hound dogs after you. This is a scary, wonderful thought that God will not leave his children alone in their rebellion. He pursued Jonah, but that pursuit took the shape of a violent storm. Not every storm that arises in life is the work of the enemy. It very well might be from the Lord. Did you catch what the text says caused the storm? Verse 4, but the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea. See, God will do whatever he has to, to wake you up and to woo you back. Hebrews 12, 6 reminds us, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. The discipline of the Lord is his love. And suddenly Jonah finds himself amidst God's discipline. He's in this serious squall that's brought on by his own sin. And notice that in this situation he finds himself in that it didn't simply affect himself. I don't have time to camp out here on this point this morning, but it bears mentioning that your rebellion always affects others. Always. Don't believe the lie that your sin is harmless, that it isn't hurting anyone. Sin always has ripple effects. Jonah's disobedience implicated the entire crew of this ship. When you choose rebellion, you aren't likely thinking about how your sin will affect others. You're probably not thinking well at all. But it always affects others. And so listen to me. I just want to press pause right here. If right now, in this moment, you are running from God and you are living in sin. 
and it hasn't yet caught up with you. If you, like Jonah, think that you're getting away with it, don't harden your heart in this moment. Do not go on sinning. I want you to heed the warning. Listen to me. You can turn around right now and run back to God. You can acknowledge your sin to him before it catches up with you and hurts a whole bunch of people. Because eventually it will. In fact, notice what happens next in this story. There's a cost to Jonah's sin. As, as the storm begins to rage, the sailors begin to panic. And each of them, these are, these are sailors who didn't follow Yahweh. But they had some sense of a deity. And so each of them is crying out to his own God, pleading for mercy. All of them except Jonah, who's just asleep in the boat. The captain eventually goes down and he finds Jonah asleep and he wakes him up and he says, what are you doing, man? Get up. Cry out to your God. Maybe your God will consider us and maybe we all won't die. It's interesting to me that, that these sailors seem to recognize that this is no ordinary storm. That this is, this is from, from God. And so they decide to to cast lots, to, to figure out whose fault it is, who, whose blame it is that this storm has happened. Casting lots was like throwing dice and it was sometimes used as a way of, of asking the gods to, to pick someone out. And so they cast lots and the lot lands on Jonah. And, and you can imagine all of the eyes in the boat zeroing in on this dude. And they say to him, what's your business and where are you from? Who are you? What are you doing on this boat? What have you done? Jonah says to him, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. He goes on to tell them his story of running from the Lord. And when he finishes talking, the sailors' mouths were gaped open. You thought you could run from God. And now there's no question where this storm came from. And they're even more afraid than they had been before. And so they, they ask Jonah, what do we do? What, what, what do we do? How can we fix this? And this is the quintessential question, isn't it? This is what we're all asking in different ways. What can we do? How can a rebellious sinner and a holy God come to terms? What can we do with this problem of sin that's causing the storm? How can we calm the storm? We're all asking this question. And Jonah looks at them and he says, you're going to have to pick me up and you're going to have to throw me into the sea and then it'll calm down for you because I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Jonah recognizes something fundamental about his sin, which is this, that a payment had to be made for it. God, the Almighty, does not skirt our sin. Yahweh is righteous and holy. Justice has to be met. Restitution has to be made. But how can you repay a debt against an infinitely holy God. What makes up for infinity? That's the dilemma. 
How do we make up for this? How do we make up for our sin? And the only way to calm the storm, the only way to deal with this problem of sin was to be thrown into it, to let him pay for his sin with his life. Well, the sailors, the sailors didn't like that answer, and we honestly don't like that answer either, do we? We want there to be some other way to appease God. We want there to be some other way for us to deal with the problem of our rebellion. And so what we do is we try, we try to fix sin on our own. Isn't that what we see here in the story, verse 13? So they began to row hard to get back to dry land. But they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. This is the folly of religion. This is the folly of religion. Amidst the raging storm of sin, religion says, row harder. Friends, people all around us are just rowing and rowing and rowing. They're trying to overcome their sense of shame, their sense of guilt, their knowledge of sin in the strength of their flesh. These sailors are crying out to their gods and they're casting off cargo from the ship to try to lighten their load. They're doing everything that they could think to do to survive in hopes that the storm would pass. And we, we look around at our world and it's a very similar situation. People are fasting and they're dieting. They're doing everything that they can to, to be right. There are a million ways this takes shape. They're chanting, they're meditating, they're praying, they're doing good deeds, they're, they're, they're exercising, they're giving to the poor. But Jonah was right. Jonah was right. Only death could calm the storm. Atonement had to be made. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And so finally, the sailors relent. Verse 15 says, so they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. Now, aren't you glad this isn't the end of the story? This would be a really bad sermon if I put a period right here. <laughs> the good news of the story of Jonah is that God's not finished with him. Because if you keep reading, very next verse, God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah's death will soon give way to new life. God's going to raise Jonah up and give him a second chance. But if you keep on reading past the book of Jonah, what you'll discover is that Jonah is merely a picture of how God will ultimately give all of us a second chance. Because eventually what we encounter in the scriptures is someone who, who jumps into the raging waters in our place. We find someone willing to suffer, not for his own sin, but for ours. Jesus is the better Jonah who surrendered his life unto death so that we could experience God's forgiveness and the peace that comes with it. Isaiah prophesied he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are all healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, like Jonah. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him, the greater Jonah, Jesus, for the iniquity of us all. 
Jesus, the Son of God, gave his life in the place of sinners. On the cross, he suffered the penalty for our rebellion. And because of Jesus, we don't have to be cast overboard for our sin and swallowed up by death. Because of Jesus, we can be forgiven by faith in him. And verse 16 says that when, when the seas quieted, the sailors stood in fear. And they worshiped the Lord and they made vows. These pagan sailors were awestruck. They recognized that Jonah's God was the living and true God. And they committed their lives to him. And friends, this is the appropriate response. What kind of God leaves heaven and robes himself in the frailty of human flesh so that he could suffer the penalty of humanity's rebellion? What kind of God satisfies his own righteousness by fulfilling it for us in response to what Jesus has done for us? We should stand in awe, church. And devote our lives to him. Let's pray.